Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 69, the Ag- Abigail Ogilvy Gallery, recorded on June 12, 2017. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How are you? It's hot today. <laughs> <laughs> I just came in from the outside, and the thermometer in my car says 100 which really well, is upsetting. <laughs> I can tell you, I took a class today. Uh, I had the last of my classes at the Museum of Fine Arts today. And uh, when it was cooler in the elevator than it was in the classroom, I knew I was in trouble. For the, It was a pretty warm day. I think the paint dried just, you know, instantly. Anyway, you might be able to guess from the title of today's podcast uh, that our guest uh, is named Abigail Ogilvy, which is kind of perfect since that's the name of her gallery. Um, so the Abigail Ogilvy Gallery opened in October 2015. It is located in Boston's SOA Art and Design District. And the focus of the gallery is on emerging and mid-career artists with a, a specialty on the long-term uh, career development of each artist. So Abigail is a graduate of Dartmouth and Sotheby's Institute of Art in New York City. Um, she has a lot of different exciting things going on. She's been recognized by Marty Walsh, who's the mayor here, as an emerging leader in Boston under his Spark Council. She serves on the board of directors um, at Artists for Humanity. She's on the steering committee at the Museum of Fine Arts, which is kind of how I know her. Uh, I saw also that she's the keynote speaker, or is or was the keynote speaker at the Harvard Leadership Conference, which sounds very fancy to me, um, and lots of other good stuff. So welcome, Abigail. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. So actually, the first time that I ever encountered Abigail was so last year when I first moved to Boston and I joined the Museum Council. I think the very first event I went to was actually at your gallery. Oh, was that the bonus event? We've had a couple at the gallery. So we definitely... Yeah, I think it was. It was a, there were two speakers, a sculptor and a painter. Oh, that's fantastic. So that was actually, I think... A month or two after we had opened. I mean, would that have been, yeah, maybe in December, January uh, 2015-16. Yeah, that would make sense because I moved here in October of 2015, and I think that was like right away, probably, you know, right after I moved, so. Yeah, and that event is kind of, you know, kind of the perfect intro of who we are as a gallery because not only... Are we, you know, getting our artists out there as much as possible, but also we're trying to teach the collectors uh, who the artists are and why they would buy their art. So the event that Julie's talking about, we, you know, it was totally fun. We had two artists. One was a sculptor who does stone sculpture, Elisa Adams, and an oil painter, Natalia Robel. And they got to speak on their process to people who could be potentially buying their art, which is totally cool for them because they're in a room full of collectors who mainly just probably see the art and process it on their own and maybe talk to the dealer about it. So I always like that kind of behind the curtain, uh, getting my artists in front of people in that way. Well, I love that event because I thought, A, I mean, they were both really articulate, which was exciting. Because sometimes, you know, artists talk about their own work and you think, what? Um, yes. but they were, <laughs> yes, yes. but they were really like, they were articulate and smart. And I thought, you know, sometimes you go to those events too. And the questions from the group tend to be, uh, like, Hey, I'm really smart. And I'm going to show you that by the question that I'm asking, which isn't really a question. It's a statement, 
But instead, I thought the crowd really asked some questions that, you know, I thought were fantastic about materials and method and even how, I think my favorite part was when Natalia talked about how she structured her day, you know. And I also thought they were such a great contrast to each other because, um, is it Elise who's the sculptor? Yeah, Elisa. So Elisa, so she um, was just in a very different place with her career than Natalia was. So that was kind of a fun contrast to hear from the two of them talking about that. Yeah, totally. Well, and that's kind of why I intentionally picked the two of them. So Elisa is a full-time chiropractor out in Lexington. And then, you know, at all of her other kind of waking hours is sculpting. Um, and then Natalia is a full-time artist. So that's what she's doing, you know from when she wakes up in the morning to when she goes to sleep, which is often at four in the morning because once she gets working, she kind of can't stop. <laughs> and did I gather that she, you and she went to Dartmouth together? We did. We kind of knew each other a little there. Um, and I think it was just we reconnected since we were both in the arts and now, you know, we're great friends and obviously work together closely. But it was uh, it was a fun way to get to know her more than I did at Dartmouth. We, you know, we kind of had some overlapping friends but weren't – you know, totally close there. So it's been really great getting to know her. And how many artists do you currently have in your stable, so to speak? So we represent 10 artists, but we've featured, I mean, including some of our larger group shows that have been fairly temporary, we've featured almost, I think, 90 artists in our gallery in a little less than two years, which is a lot to think about. But, um, yeah, so the artists that we represent, we show them on an ongoing basis, and we really promote them in all ways throughout the city. So I know I just saw you at the MFA summer party where we had three artists actually in the silent auction there. Oh, I didn't realize you had three. So I know, um, so the Museum of Fine Arts had their, you know, silent auction, obviously, for people who don't know, as part of their the summer party. And there was, there's an official print, I know, that gets chosen every year. And I know that Julia Powell was one of your artists, and she did the official print. But who were the other two? Yeah, so Julia had a piece, and then Ola Axon had a piece. It was actually right next to her, next to Julia's in the auction. It was a larger abstract piece. It was kind of some, like, pinks and purples. Um, And then Katie Wilde had a steampunk series of kind of, like, oil and mixed media on steel. And she had a smaller piece that was sort of around the corner. Um, And they all sold, and two of them for over market value, which was really exciting. That's very exciting. Could we start uh, with sort of what was your life in art before you did the gallery and then what motivated you to open the gallery and then how that process went? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of have a funny background because I haven't been just in the arts in my entire career, you know, after college. So I I'd been an art history major at Dartmouth, uh, totally fell in love with working at galleries when I worked abroad. I worked at two galleries, had never experienced working with living artists. So, you know, in art history, you're just researching and learning about those before us. So here I was working with artists, talking to people about the work, finding that connection and that really fun learning opportunity for everyone where you, that moment of discovery with the artwork and having the exhibitions and figuring out what people liked and what they wanted to talk about and see. Um, and then when I graduated, it just wasn't the best time to get a job, honestly. So I worked at a company at the time was called CSN stores. And now more people would know it because they rebranded while I was there to Wayfair. 
um, I was in operations there, which interestingly enough plays into what I do now because much of what I do day to day is sort of logistics, getting artwork from point A to point B, getting it to our shows, back to the artists, to the clients. Um, and that's really, I, that's what I was doing while I was at Wayfair. And then I moved on to an advertising startup where I kind of saw an opportunity to be a bit more creative again. Uh, we were, it was social media advertising. So we were creating ads that fell into people's news feeds and all that fun stuff on Facebook. Um, but at the end of the day, it really wasn't my passion to be doing that. And I didn't feel like I was really helping people in a way that I would have wanted to in my career. And quite honestly, I think the, you know, the hours I was working there, I was working very hard and I wanted to really work out. But since I was feeling that, you know, disconnect in what I wanted to really do in life and what I was doing, I thought, well, how could I work this hard at something that I truly believe in? Uh, so I think that job really just pushed me to reassess what I was doing and find a way to do what I was passionate about. So I just went out and started networking like crazy and meeting all sorts of amazing people and um, just talking to everyone. You know, any person is a fun opportunity to just get coffee with, hear their story, figure out maybe who else they know and is there someone else you should talk to. So I met um, a lot of people that really helped me along the way especially this woman, Meredith Moses, who ran a gallery, Clark Gallery in Lincoln, Mass for 30 years. So she and I connected. We called each other the bookends of the art world because I was 26 at the time and she was 82. And um, we still we still spend quite a bit of time together. Uh, but, you know, she just started talking in the present saying, when you open your gallery, when the gallery is open. And even though it was just an idea to me at the time and I was trying to put the pieces in place, I think there's that moment of, enabling yourself to really do what you believe in. And it helps when other people speak about it in a way that's really, you know, it's happening. So uh, I signed a lease in 2015 and uh, moved in October 2015 to the gallery. So that's the very abbreviated version of it. Um, I took, I did, I just took classes at Sotheby's. I didn't do their full masters. I did kind of their business and curating courses that they offer uh, that are one-off, which are really fantastic in New York City. So on the surface, when you go to get, when one goes to a gallery, you see, okay, this is what they do. They hang or show art. They have little openings. They sell it. Maybe they produce a catalog. But what are some of the things that happen behind the scenes that, that are like the bottom of the iceberg that we don't see? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I think one of many galleries' greatest secrets are that, you know, besides just the gallery owner who's often the name on the door, there's just so many more people involved, starting from interns who are often the ones maybe making the catalogs to assistant directors who are doing almost all of the handling of conversations with artists, which can be a lot of back and forth. There's just the amount of times we rewrite the names of each piece of artwork, the size, the medium, by the time it's on our website, in the catalog, you know, on the labels, we've seen it so many times we have it all memorized, which is great. <laughs> uh, but even I'm doing those details, you know, it doesn't stop kind of at any point because we're such a small team. Um, but yeah, I think there's sort of this sense that it's all really glamorous and it's all client meetings and kind of things like that. People always say to me they wish they opened a gallery and I think they should if they really believe in it. But there's definitely 
a lot happening that's, you know, maybe me. I clean up the walls between shows. I spackle and paint. And that's a part of my job as well as the speaking to clients and going hanging it in their homes. So kind of runs the gamut. Have there been things that have surprised you? I mean, the gallery has, you know, not been open that long. And obviously it's your first gallery. Um, Have there been surprises along the way? You know, I get that question a lot. I don't know that I've had any huge surprise that maybe was something I really didn't expect. I have been surprised, I think, before I opened and even still that I don't know how to word it really. People really question how well we're doing, I think, a lot. People ask me all the time, are you really selling art? Do people really buy art? Which is funny to me, and I just use it as a learning opportunity for them and say, <laughs> yes, they are. Here's you know, how it happens. Here's where it's going. Well, that um, seems also like an insanely rude question, too. Yeah, like Nobody walks up to a lawyer and is like, do, you know, is your law firm really doing well? But yeah. they do walk up to you, Julie, who works as an artist, and say, they do. do you actually you make, make a, a living, living at, at this? Yes. yes, that's sort of the question. Is it a project? Is sort like I think they think it's maybe a fun idea I had, as opposed mm-hmm. to like this is really my my job that I go to every day and is how I pay my bills. <laughs> um, Why do you think it- that is? I've had a lot of questions about this because I often run into people who after I tell them that I'm an artist, say to me, do you make a living at that? And I've always wondered why that's an important question for people to am- ask, you know? Or is it because the art world is sort of this mysterious thing that is harder to understand than, you know, you go and work in finance and maybe there's an expected salary and even I kind of know ballpark what that might be and people just don't know what that looks like on the, in the art world. Which is probably true, but I would never walk up to someone in finance and say, what's, what are you making when people right. question our prices all the time? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I agree that I think the art world is a weird and nebulous thing. I think for me, there's some weird thing where, I mean, you know how hard it is to judge art, obviously. And I, and I do want to talk about like how you choose the art for your gallery, whether you're thinking about just stuff you love or th- stuff you think will sell or sort of what the whole idea behind that is. But before we get there, I think that people have such a hard time judging art that one of the only um, standards I think they use now is like, oh, well, if you're if you're making a living at it, then you must be good. Or if you're selling a lot, then you must be good as opposed to, you know, oh, let me see what you did and make my mind up for myself about whether or not I like it. Right. Yeah. People need that validation. I mean, they want to know where the artist went to school, who's maybe purchased from them or what they're doing now. They want to know it's still they're still making art or how rare it is. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. Not dissimilar, actually, from being an actor. Julie was a theater director before. And there is this whole thing of if you're not currently in a show or a film or something, are you an actor? Are you, you know, there's oh, this idea of not understanding that there's a whole lot more to things than the end product well it's like i would say for instance like the sculptress this elisa who we were talking about you know that she has a full-time job as a chiropractor so she is a chiropractor she also you know obviously produces art and absolutely is an artist you know and do they have to be one or the other right i mean i don't know the answer to that but i think obviously i believe that she is an artist and 
she's also a chiropractor. Um, yes. And that's, they're both things that she does for employment. And it's not like one or the other is kind of like a side thing. She is really identifies them both as things that she takes very seriously. She does as her business. Because I didn't get the sense from her, and obviously you know her better, but just when she was speaking, it didn't seem like she was doing chiropractory to pay the bills. It seemed like that was something she enjoyed, you know. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Well, Gauguin huh. was a bank teller. Was he not an artist while he was a bank teller? Fair Do you point. know what I mean? Yes. Yes, yes. Um, Is it something you are or something you do? Well, it's also, I think, the question of, like, I mean, people always point out, right, you know, Van Gogh didn't make any money. I mean, Basquiat died penniless. Like, there are just so many different things like that where we just seem to equate financial success with um, being successful at whatever it is that you do, you know. Well, and art has become such a commodity. Yeah. Because it is the question, I mean, is what you were saying, Abigail, about people want to know the provenance of work and they want to know all that kind of stuff because they're seeing it as an investment as much as a buying something because I like it and want to put it in my house. Right, exactly. But I don't know. I think that investment, if that's what you want to call it, can mean a lot of things. Um, what I say to people is, it, if you want to use the word investment, is you're really just investing for our artists in their careers overall. So when I write my artists their checks, more often than not, they're going out and getting better quality canvases, better paint, so that their work can be even better and they can, you know, have more work in the future. Uh, and that's what really excites me is how, how passionately they feel about it. And then it's not necessarily about becoming the biggest name, even though those are very cool hopes for the future. Um, it's just about doing the work that they love. So how do you find your artists? How do you assess whether it would work in your gallery well to start before we even opened I really had to pick artists who based off of really market research plus what I really loved what I find interesting if you really drill into our roster of artists they all have very interesting processes that's something I care about deeply they all are able to talk about their art in an amazing way and uh, have different stories about why they do it and what drives them and they're all fairly early in their career. So that could be 10 years in or they just graduated from their MFA program. And now, now that we're open and, you know, I can have shows, what I found really useful is to do, I do two group shows a year and I mix in artists that I represent and have signed on to work with on an ongoing basis and then some that I feature. And what we can kind of do is get a sense of the response. So that way we can have a piece or two in a show see if it works really well, see if it doesn't necessarily even have to sell. It could just be that we got amazing reviews, people are interested in learning more, they want to keep following the career, and then maybe we say, you know, let's get a piece in another show because people want to see it over and over for these types of artists. They're new names that no one really knows yet, so we have to show them enough so that they can see what's happening, see that there are multiple exhibitions, and then that's kind of how we find our successes together. Um, does that answer the question? I don't know. It's a tough question because it's a little bit personal to me and I like a variety of things. So we have painting, mixed media, we have installation in our next show. So we really show quite a variety of things. Do you go to a lot of art shows? Do you go to artist studios? How do you, yeah. how does somebody get on your radar screen? 
That's a good question. So we usually it's someone might refer them to me. So that's really how I found the strongest artists. So uh, if someone came to me and said, there's an artist I've heard of, um, she's, you know, friend of a friend, I'd love for you to look at the work. And I don't think she's showing anywhere in Boston right now. I would obviously, I would 100% check out their website, see how it looks. Things always look a little different on a website than they do in person. So if they're local or if I could get to their city, I would definitely want to try to get a studio visit. I always want to see it in person if I possibly can. And um, and then if it's something that kind of goes with our aesthetic, I think it could fit into a show, then that's when we could kind of talk about figuring out how, how to have an exhibition together. Would it work out? Um, we've had, we have some people that kind of cold reach out to us via email or calls. And I've probably had one or two artists that we've shown through that avenue, but really it's those that come through, whether it's just a friend of mine, uh, another gallerist who just doesn't have room on their roster for someone, all sorts of referrals from people, kind of how you would get any job. Um, I mean, in this day and age, so many people, even when they're getting a job at a tech company, they need to know someone at the company to get that referral. So it's sort of like that. So I know on your Instagram, I often see you visiting uh, the studios of artists who are in your roster. So I'm just curious, what are you doing during those visits? Yeah, well, we're just having conversations about their new bodies of work. A lot of them start new series, and I want to keep seeing what they have. It's helpful for me to know what it looks like in person. I'm often picking up pieces from them to bring back to the gallery so that we can have them, even if they're not hanging on the walls. People are coming in all the time saying, you know, I love... Julia Powell, can I see more of her work? And we pull it out for them so that they can have a private viewing, see it in person. And that's really fantastic for the artist when that starts to happen more and more uh, as we show their work and people really get to know them. Um, But yeah, it's fun for me because they're just producing such new work all the time and they can really surprise me sometimes. Um, Holly Harrison, one of our artists, is starting a whole new series that's on uh, kind of focused on endangered species. And She's going to have portraits that are half human, half bird. And that's a big change for her work. So it's exciting to see these kind of moments of exploration happen. Are you directive towards your artists in terms of like giving your opinion about I like this, I don't like this? Or are you just sort of more observational? From working with my artists and them giving me feedback, I've found that it seems like what I do is they notice what I seem to really like. And maybe it's, I won't say I don't like, you know, that piece over there, but I'll probably be focusing on maybe three that aren't that piece. And then they'll kind of continue that series maybe more because they can tell I want to see more of it. Um, But I don't necessarily outright say, you know, you should make five more of these, but in different colors or anything like that. That's not really what our conversations look like. They're more like, you know, this has been a really great series would you ever return to it what's next you know just so I can be having accurate conversations with people when they come in about what the artists are doing and so have you ever been an art maker yes I have so I by hobby took some painting classes at the Elliott School in JP um, in Jamaica, Jamaica Plain back a couple years uh, probably five plus years ago but it was really just for fun I don't I do not identify as an artist I more identify as kind of a curator and a gallerist so um 
Although I have to imagine, I mean, I think the thing that has is always interesting to me is uh, when you know more, obviously, about methods and materials and having tried it yourself, you're just more uh, conversations easier, you know, you're more able to talk to people about what they're doing. Absolutely. And that's something, I mean, I worked in oil and acrylic paint, and that's quite a bit of what we show. So it's much easier for me to understand techniques that would be harder to achieve than others based on my experience. I'm curious about sort of the network of galleries. Do you find that, I mean, that's SOA district. If, if there's anybody who's local to Boston and never has been down there, you need to go. There's just, it's a wonderful sort of beehive, I'd say, almost of galleries um, and little shops of all kinds. I mean, is there a, is there a strong community among the owners? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's sort of been, you know, to piggyback off of that, there's sort of been a migration of some galleries from Newberry Street as well as some new galleries that came into the area. So there's definitely a lot of different types of galleries to see. And we, as a group, have started to have collaborations. We just threw a big summer party last week. We called it the SOA Summer Party, and it was focused on the galleries and design shops uh, so that we had some little jazz trios outside on people's patios. We had some uh, alcohol sponsors, which were really fantastic, and um, another band inside. So I think we got a little over 500 to 800 people to come through. I can't really tell. We had a lot of RSVPs, and it was a huge success. So those kind of events that are getting people to see a lot of art after hours is a really great way to invite people into our artistic community and our artistic fold. And you know, I love having events just in my space, but maybe people want to see something different than the kind of things I'm curating and exhibiting. So it's really nice when they do get that opportunity to see more than just one gallery. So I'm curious about, I mean, there. I know that I talk to a lot of people who either are scared or intimidated by even going into a gallery because they think you have to be a customer, you know, to go in. And I'm just wondering if you have any, do you care if people come in or kind of mostly looky-loos? Does it bother you? Are you, you know, what are no, your feelings love, on it? So, yeah, and we get that all the time. So that's a big portion of trying to be a bit as approachable as we can, which could be, so I sort of talked with Matthew Teitelbaum, the director of the MFA, very briefly during the summer party about this, because that's really his kind of new way to look at things. So people really need to be invited in to see art and experience it now. That's kind of like a new thing. And it's not as much about uh, people just randomly walking in your doors. That does happen and it's exciting and it's okay if they don't know a thing and they just want to say, you know, I like this, I hate this, that's okay. They don't need to know some code language. Um, but it can definitely be intimidating. So that's why a lot of the events that we put on might not necessarily be specific about the show we have up, but it gets people in our doors and then they have these wonderful conversations and realize they feel a little bit better than they realize being in a gallery. Granted, they might be with 50 other people, so no one hears them if they say, you know, I don't really get this or this doesn't make sense to me. And maybe that makes them a little more comfortable to start and then they'll come back on their own or a different time or for a different event and just getting their attention and getting them to see the art and talk about as much as possible is really exciting for me and hopefully can kind of change some points of view. But yeah, I think it'll always be a little intimidating to some people. You know, the Museum of Fine Arts now is on a campaign to broaden the kind of audience who comes 
to their museum and one of the issues is getting younger people in because a lot of the museum membership and attendance is from much older people. Is there a similar issue around galleries and how can you address that? Yeah, I was reading a bit about their, it was a high percentage that, I mean, a very low percentage that's young people that go to the MFA, which I was really surprised by given that also that we're just such like a college city here in Boston. Um, For us, I guess a little bit. I think maybe the younger crowd is the more challenge where we really have to teach them that it's, you you can really come in and experience the art. That is something people are still doing in an age where things are shifting. Like everything's on a computer. Now people are buying things sight unseen. It's just going to change over time. But at the end of the day, we're still finding that people want to come in and see it. They really want to see it in person even of all ages. So, um, you know, it's, it's great if people are coming in that are under the age of 35, but they might not necessarily be buying yet, or they might be thinking about starting to buy. And those are things that we're sort of helping people with and guiding them along slowly, but surely so that someday when they want to buy art, they know to go to SOA. That's what we're trying to tell people to do, or they know to go to a gallery or that they should support the arts. Um, and that's, I think, kind of what the MFA is thinking about now. It's like, how do we start educating people that it's okay to walk into the museum's doors and experience art, and it's something you should want to think about doing. For you, what's the difference between a museum and a gallery? Well, galleries are selling art. And, um, yeah, I mean, one's a huge institution, and one's just a very small, almost like family-run in some ways, um, retail store if you really break it down into the simplest terms so for us what's really exciting is we can decide that in our show that we're hanging this week let's take out four pieces we thought we were going to have and put four pieces up you know we're really nimble and quick and we can change things out quickly the museum is planning exhibitions you know five ten years out so there's definitely that sense of like we can really define maybe what the contemporary art market is in Boston or anywhere. Um. I agree. I mean, I feel like for me, there is something about contemporary art in museums is always kind of a difficult question, right? Because it takes so long to get an exhibit together. I mean, even out at Mass Mocha, right? That stuff, um, by the way, for people who are not familiar with Mass Mocha, it's the, it's a huge, wonderful contemporary art museum out in Western Mass. And, um, you know, they do a lot of site-specific stuff, which I think helps with the whole idea of, like, some of the ephemeral nature of contemporary art. But it certainly doesn't get at the question of, like, what's right now. I remember going to an exhibit at MoMA, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, maybe last year, year before, and the curatorial talk, This the curator was talking about how uh, this was all art that was truly done, you know, and created in the last year or two by artists, and she was saying it's been a long time since in MoMA, they have have smelled, you know, that smell when an oil painting has been finished Ooh. and you can really still smell it. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And she said, like, the halls of MoMA have not smelled like oil paint in so long. So it was crazy to walk into a gallery and, like, get that whiff, you know, so unusual. So for me, there's something about um, galleries dealing more with, like, because it is for sale, because it is, you know, in the moment, maybe what people want, something that's maybe more... 
uh, contemporary pop culture, even something that has to, more to do with the zeitgeist, you know, and museums tend to me to feel like they're trying to uh, present something historically or sometimes hold art up because it is important for certain reasons, you know, and place it in the context of uh, some sort of timeline. Yeah. I, I also feel like yeah. museums, to me, should have moved on from the days of just sort of collecting. I expect a good art museum to teach me. I expect to learn something every time I go to a museum. So the question is, does that happen in a gallery? Or is what I'm learning just exposure to artists I haven't been exposed to? I think generally it's more the second. So it's more just, you know, here's the artist, here's information about the artist. So that's really what you're learning and taking in. Mm -hmm. We definitely, and maybe it's because you know, I had two parents that were in education for their entire lifetime career. So that's something that I kind of hold near and dear to me. And that's why when, when we have these events, like the one that you went to, Julius, that it's, I hope that you did learn something. So you, you definitely did. It sounds like you learned that from our artists, uh, their process and the things that they're thinking about or that people walked away learning that an artist starts her day with yoga, meditation, and then begins the work. I mean, that's interesting information, things that I kind of take for granted because I know what my artists are doing and I know their stories. But those are the kind of things that, whether it's that or maybe something more in depth or about how to buy art that we're trying to just get people to learn more and think about learning as opposed to just the looking at the art, which is also an important piece of it, but different. Here's an odd question. Does the way you feel about the artist as a person, as a human being, influence the degree to which you enjoy their art? When we look at uh, dead artists work of course we don't see them as a person they may have been absolutely horrible people and I'm sure many of them through <laughs> history were but we're judging their art basically on what we're seeing or feeling right at that moment but when you're interacting with a contemporary artist do you think any of the personal relationship bleeds over into your assessment or appreciation of their art I don't know that, so I, you know, I develop either friendships or whatever you can call it with my artists over time and, um, but they're all different, you know, they're all not necessarily, that's not why we go into it. Uh, it's really based on truly the artwork. Of course, I want it to be a wonderful relationship together and us to work really well together. So those things are important. But I think for the people interested in the artwork, that's a huge new piece of it. So we actually have a whole series of videos that we're hoping to put together this summer. And that's one of our bigger projects where we're going to go into the artist studios and do video interviews with them and have those available on our website. That's how people are taking in information now. And so many people want to know who the artist is. They don't, it's kind of gone are the days where you only need to meet the dealer. They can talk about the work and that's it. I keep my artists very involved because the, the buyer I think cares more about who the artist is. Do they have things in common? Are they connecting to their stories? And it's been amazing to me to watch someone enjoy a piece and then I say a bit about the artist's background and the person says, wow, you know, my mom grew up in Concord and it's so interesting that Holly was a poet um, because, you know, 
that's something that I studied and now the artwork changes for them. So it's really interesting. It's, it's really important to have those conversations and contemporary art has to really be explained. I think it can't just be looked at. So the genesis of that question is actually the current exhibit at the MFA museum of fine arts of Matisse in his studio, which in, includes objects that he personally owned which appear in some of his artworks and there's a room which has some i think it's african art and there's some uh couple of journals and there's this i got the sense from some of the explanations that he had a very colonial attitude toward uh the people who made the art and it colored my feelings about his artwork, which had never happened to me before. And I started to look at some of the uh, paintings, for example, and feel distanced from them in a way I never had before because of my feelings about him and his attitude toward these third world people. It just, I cannot explain it. I just it happened to me there so I was curious that's all well I think mom you also said like in particular I know that there is a piece uh in the exhibit with Chinese characters in it and and which he was using mostly as decoration instead of content and I think you said that for the first time that actually jangled at you too it was distancing for me it's um you know if it had been English letters I couldn't have helped but read it and whatever it said would have influenced how I felt about where it was placed and what it was used as. And because it was in a different language using characters, most people who don't read Chinese, would, which I don't either, would have looked at it and just seen it as design. But I suddenly felt the kind of incongruousness of inserting it into all kinds of different situations where it might be saying something completely inappropriate. I just don't know. It just suddenly struck me in that exhibit. That's all. We can move on. I just wanted to tell you that. <laughs> no, because I, I think it was, it's interesting. That it was gets... one of the first times I had ever thought about that really in a serious way in relation to an artist. That's but I all. think it gets into a contemporary idea that is important, which is the cult of personality of the artist these days is so deeply important. I mean, it is, it is uh, this is sort of a trivialization, but it is the Frida Kahlo effect, which is I think, you know, most people would say Frida Kahlo's artwork is interesting because of knowing her life story because when you push you know everything that has happened to her and then you start to see the stories coming out you know but at least I'll speak for myself for me most of the time looking at her work I don't sort of it's not visually to me like the most exciting the most interesting the most fascinating but it is I do find her work compelling and dramatic and emotional because of having read an enormous amount about her life, you know. And so, I mean, if you take extrapolate that out even more, it's kind of like, you know, these people who have 500,000 followers or whatever on Instagram, and it is that cult of personality where people, yes, are interested in what they're making, but they're interested in watching the process. They're interested in, you know, 
um, seeing the whole the whole person like being an artist as an as a uh, entire package that you're buying so I just wondered since you actually know the artists and you interact with the artists whether that ever comes into play yeah absolutely and I think you know people just like you said like are the artists for us that are really promoting themselves through their own personal Instagrams or on their own websites or through their own networks, that's an important part of it. We're really working together to do that and that it helps get their name out there more and we can then do that as well. And together, that's how we've found really much stronger successes when the artist is also really working in that way to expose who they are and, you know, say, here's how my process exists and what happens they get people to follow and really like it because, like you said, they're just so curious to find out what's happening. They kind of might be really taken by maybe it's just the first artist they happen to see and learn more about, and that really connects them. But, it, I mean, that kind of information just didn't, you know, exist like how you're saying you don't <laughs> – not a huge Matisse fan maybe anymore. <laughs> I, am sure I still that's... love Matisse, but I feel I view some of his work differently. I see things that I didn't see before. Now, also, is it fair to take somebody from a different century and view them through the lens of my century? Probably not, but I can't escape it. Well, it's the I same know, as anything. Totally. I can't feel the same about Cary Grant now that you know everything came out about how he was a wife beater and stuff, right? Well, exactly. I mean, it's like at the end of the day, if now we can say, oh, we know that they were a bad person, then it just it changes what we think. But we have access to all of that information now, it feels like. It's true. And I mean, I think that is that is another thing. So uh, in my art class today, this woman who was another student came up to me and she said, I feel like you're a person who feels things deeply. And I kind of looked at her and I was like, come again? What? And she said, I see in all your work like this deep pain and an expression of whatever. And I thought, I'm actually a pretty happy-go-lucky person, but okay, if you want to see something, that's that's great, right? And then it, we actually got to talking, and she was talking about how for her, creating art is this like – way that she expresses all her emotions that she's able sort of in a safe way without feeling like people are judging her emotions or judging her choices you know to get it all out there and I think one of the things um is nowadays you know like if you think about Instagram if you see a photo without a caption that's kind of weird right we add all these words to really like crystallize whatever it is that we're showing or posting on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And it's, and I think sometimes with art, this is why people want it almost explained to them even more because they don't want to have to do that leap of like thinking or feeling or, you know, bringing whatever to it. And yet at the same time, I feel like that's, that is one of the more exciting things about um, art is that the three of us could each look at the same painting and bring different stories and like if you know and like you were saying the person who had grown up in Concord or the person who you know whatever else that then that just adds another dimension to it or if you look at somebody's work and you're like hey I recognize that that kind of looks like my hometown um, 
you know, that you really are bringing yourself to it. So I always sort of, I love the idea that we're trying to explain things more to people and give them more information, but it also makes me cringe because I kind of feel like it's so important for people to bring themselves to what they're viewing. It's like, it's like reading a book, you know, you, the reader is in a conversation with the author. It's not just a one-way thing because you're, that's why we hate the movie version of books because it's not what was in our heads. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we try to balance carefully when people are walking in our doors. I love hearing what they think of the work. We, we had this painting by an artist, Nina Dine. Um, it was uh, in our group show this past December, and it was many different nudes, kind of at different angles, some between legs, different body parts, and it was all female, and the piece was called My Muse. And someone went up to the piece and said, wow, she must really be obsessed with herself. But it's actually a new body of work she's been doing that's inspired by her girlfriend, or now fiance, actually. So it was just so interesting that, you know, we hadn't, since we knew the background, we knew that the muse wasn't herself, but that's what the other person thought. So it's really interesting to hear what people think on their own, whether it's, you know, I guess you could say right or wrong, but it's not really ever wrong because they can come, we're giving them the opportunity to come up with their own ideas. I love that. And, you know, this just reminds me of, so uh, I used to live a couple blocks away from MoMA, so I used to go there all the time. And there was something that the education department there did, which I would often catch in the middle of the afternoon, which is there's this one Matisse painting. I'm sorry to bring up Matisse, mom. I hope it's okay. I'm not saying I love Matisse. I just it has just not the man, just not the man. I understand the the (laughs) approach to some of the subjects. That's all. Um, But anyway, so they used to sit in front of this one painting, which is of Matisse's son at the piano. And the curator would ask them this series of questions. And I think I heard the series of questions a million times. So it sort of stuck in my brain. But the first thing, and they were usually she's who would be the uh, education people. But the first thing she would ask the group is she would say, what do you think this painting is about? And I thought that was a fantastic uh, way to start because instead of saying this is a painting of Matisse's son at working at the piano she says to a group of kids who this may be a, their first or early experience you know because they were usually little kids they looked like to me um, you know th- was that I get to have an opinion about what this is about when I look at it and I think sometimes if we you know more often allow people to have that opinion about what it is or how it makes them feel or whatever, then I think people get more excited about art because instead of feeling like there's a right and a wrong and it's limiting or scary, they get excited about the fact that they can participate. I know that I, even when I hate a piece, which hate is a strong word, but it happens. Even when I hate a piece, I like being able to have that hate. I like being able to ha- be able to say, I don't like this, you know, and that that's okay, that that's not wrong of me. I'll be the judge of whether it's <laughs> wrong of you. <laughs> I'm your mother. Yes, well, that's been true my whole life. So speaking of things that you like and things that you hate, uh, my first question is, we are going to post a bunch of pictures, I know, um, in the post about this, but I'm wondering if you could kind of describe to people, Abigail, your aesthetic like what is the work that you love to host um in your gallery 
Well, you know, just looking at our website and glancing through, you can quickly pick up that we show quite a bit of abstract work, and that could be in a variety of, you know, it's presented in a variety of ways, whether it's painting or mixed media. Uh, that's just something that kind of naturally we were being introduced to a lot of abstract artists, and there's a lot of artists working in abstract right now, but that was something that I also enjoy personally. So I think it's easier for me to talk about a piece of art that I really love, which all of the artists we show, I feel that way about, um, and really authentically portray that to our audience. Uh, I have to love it. So really we have a lot of abstract. Uh, we have some, I like mixed media because usually that means there's a process. So that might mean some sort of collage layering. Uh, we have a new artist we're showing where a portion of his paintings are half polymer resin, which is essentially plastic, and half are found signs in Oakland, California. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really just, I my kind of aesthetic is just, it's a variety of things. It's hard to pinpoint, and there's not really one way to describe it. But things that you look at and almost say, like, what is that? Or what's happening here? Or, oh, this is a landscape, but it's not using natural colors when I get up close, and it's using actually purples and you know, all sorts of things when it looks like it's just an oceanscape. So those things that really invite the viewer to walk up closer. You have we go. What do you think triggers a person to move from liking something to buying it? Wow, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't give out all my secrets. No. <laughs> um, um, some people just like it right away, actually. So Meredith Moses, the woman I referred to earlier, who's a mentor and friend of mine, she said, if you look at something and say, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, three times in a row, you need to buy it right then. <laughs> so she definitely sold during a time when people saw something, they loved it, and they bought it. I think people see something and they love it, but then they just want to know more information about the person who did it or the piece in particular. And I think that's what ultimately leads to the sale is finding out really what it means and then maybe do they identify with it and do they just love it you know I was thinking that you crystallized a little bit for me I, I mean I am deeply appreciative of painters like Goya or you know anybody else who paints that sort of very realistic unbelievably skilled you know kind of work but I've never been super attracted to that kind of work when I see it and I think it's partially because of that thing you were saying about the question of what is that, how is that, or this is right but wrong. And there's there's a question in almost all the work that I personally like to see, you know. And I think I think that for me is just that's just an that's an interesting crystallization moment of that's really what it is. Um, as much as I enjoy pictures of you know flowers and cod and all those nice still lifes and stuff like that. I like the the open-endedness, maybe, shall we say, of a lot of work. So who are your some of your favorite um, artists, contemporary or dead? So I had heard in your other podcast that you didn't feel strongly about Goya. I actually felt very moved by the MFA exhibit mm. of Goya work. But I think because, you know, it's not so much, so kind of like you said, like, I don't know that that would ever be what I'd be buying but there's something about seeing a portrait especially at the scale that they were I mean they weren't human scale they were much larger that you almost are looking right at this person from the past and just wondering things like like you said there's no caption so 
you don't see the person and maybe you see their title of who they are. But I just found that show so interesting because who knows what they're really thinking or if they're, you know, happy or sad or who they're going to marry or, you know, all those things that we like to know about people now and can so easily find out. I just found that really impactful and they just were, you know, in another time that's so different from now. Um, who else? Uh, Anna Shulite is an artist who I once did a studio visit with, and I absolutely love her work. She does uh, a variety of abstract pieces, but she also pairs them with her husband's work. He's a composer, hmm. so there'll be music. There'll be music that goes along with her work. I bought one of her. She signed up with a gallery and did this post online that said, you know, before they take on all my inventory, I'm selling all my works on paper. And I bought one of her pieces. It was just like a $400, I think, or $600, or something like that. It was a, just a work on paper. It was one of her kind of just like doodles she did. But it was this beautiful, like these two legs with ballet slippers on them. So I just I just love that piece. Um, and then all of my artists, of course. Uh, I try to get works from all of them, which is uh, fun for us to have in our home. And Sue Sunny Park is an artist who we showed. She's fairly established. She was... Uh, she's very established and she was sort of a break from our normal exhibitions but I found her work so attractive and interesting because of the time and skill that goes into making it she did these amazing um, pieces that were fence kind of like those I'm not going to describe this well but um, she she just has such mixed media elements and it takes her hundreds of thousands of hours to do her work and it's so meticulous that it just was just so powerful to me. Um, you can just look up her work and whatever comes up first will be incredible. Cool. Um, so what is, what is coming up for the gallery? What's next? We have our summer group show going up. We have nine artists in that show. And I think it's sort of split on who we've shown in the past and who's new. Uh, it's a fun way for us to introduce some new artists to... Boston. Uh, one, uh, Michael Gordon, he's just graduated um, from his MFA in San Francisco. So he just shipped his work and we got it. We're showing Marina Hera. She works out of San Diego. So we have kind of a mix between some artists that are working locally who we've worked with in the past and then some that are from other parts of the country that no one in Boston has ever seen their work before. So that's fun for us. That's exciting. Um, can we talk about the MFA for a moment? Um, so would you have sort of feelings on their contemporary art that they, uh, show? Um, interesting. Well, what, I mean, what kind of feelings are you looking for? I'm just wondering, like, are you like, oh, you know, I think that they display a lot of artists who are, you know, from one particular school of thought, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, um, is there any sort of particular feelings you have on, I like the, you know, the way knowing, they display the art, the way they, you know. I've always loved the MFA, like a museum like that, having such a strong contemporary wing is really important and great that they have that. I think some of the, um, you know, Museum of Fine Arts and other cities are still working to grow those collections. So I think for Boston, I think it's fantastic for being such a big institution that they have the contemporary wing that they have and knowing a lot about their back and kind of the inner workings of the museum for them, it is a really slow process to acquire a piece. So it's hard to judge that, you know, it's just so different than 
the world I live in. They show a lot of really strong artists that I've seen in other museums around our country. I see a lot of them at art fairs. So that's, you know, exciting. It's for me, I'm just so interested in new artists that we haven't seen a lot of. And that's just not what you'll find necessarily. Uh, you know, people should, will really recognize the names of the artists they see in their contemporary wing. So that's kind of that fine line of like, what is, how long are those artists going to be listed as the contemporary artists? Like, and then when does the next kind of group come in? So I find that interesting. Well, so this, the woman who I was taking this classroom at the MFA, her name is Rhea Brodell and she's a working artist. And she uh, was saying that she had recently had a gallery show and um, I cannot remember which museum it is, but somebody came by and was interested in some of her art uh, from one of the museums and sort of like was hemming and hawing with the gallery owner about it. And then a, the museum at uh, Wellesley College, which has a name that I can't remember, I'm sorry to say. But anyway, that art museum, that buyer apparently came in on the last day of the show and bought like eight paintings out of the show. And then uh, when the other museum found out, they went ballistic and got upset and then they and the rest of her show ended up getting bought by that museum and the gallery owner was like this is insane but it was literally just because one museum was interested the other one got catalyzed into you know buying it I thought that was a fascinating story I love that story good for that artist right That's amazing so she was saying so she yeah. works on these hyper realistic paintings so she was saying like you know it took her you know a couple of years to get this amount of work done and she sort of assumed she'd have all of it or most of it after the show yeah and now it's all gone she said it's a good problem to have but kind of hilarious that is so funny yeah because ultimately you really do want to get your artists in museum collections it's a huge honor for the artist it's a huge step in their career so I mean even if it's not the Museum of Fine Arts you know one of the biggest ones in Boston even the smaller ones are really exciting I think because it's also what we were saying about sometimes the difference between a museum and a gallery at least for me is like you feel like museums are collecting things for the historical record and so on some way they must see you as an important part of that record if they're buying your work oh absolutely and we have the museum curators who pass through SOA. They stop through our space. We just, uh, John Ravenall, who's the director of the De Cordova. He's wonderful. He stops through very often many of the galleries in the South End. So he just came through, I think on Sunday and we had a great chat and it's just, he wants to see what we have up. He wants to see who we're showing. He just wants to have interesting conversations. And that's really fun for us as a gallery to know that someone like that is taking the time to come through and see what's happening in the art world in Boston. I think that's super exciting because I think of curators as being so crazy busy just with like the daily, you know, museum stuff that they're not like out actually looking to see what's out there. Yeah, well, and he's the director, so he's not necessarily the curator, right. but um, it's just exciting that he's here. <laughs> yeah, that is fun. So anything else, Mom, before we skedaddle out of here? No, I think this has been quite uh, uh, illuminating and I've got things to think about. I was thinking about why uh, one of the things I like is I like craft jewelry. And I was trying to think about what is it about the craft jewelry that appears appeals to me. And I think it's because when you wear jewelry, you're in an interaction with the piece. And you are in a certain way designing how the piece is going to appear and what you wear it with. And, you know, sometimes I'll wear two different earrings uh, rather than the pair that came. And I feel like I'm creating something, a complete something 
using the jewelry. And I like that idea that I'm somehow part of it. And I think uh, but some of that... how you display art in your home is a way of sort of interacting with the piece as well. And I, I really, in, I don't create art, but I enjoy that kind of conversation with the art. But I think like craft jewelry is also one of those things I know like when we are, you know, buying stuff either from the artist, which is one of the things we always talk to them about is like is process because I think that's interesting to both of us or even like mobilia, which is a great wearable, um, you know, gallery in Cambridge. They are, uh, you know, they're very good about talking to you about um the artist again we you know what kind of stuff they create what the mood is you know what their methods are you know so even if I'm not soldering in my own studio I like to know you know how people are putting things together you know it's not dissimilar we always go back to cooking because that's something I do often it's not dissimilar from wanting to know more about the ingredients where were they grown what you know what's what else can you do with it experimenting with it there's like this feeling that you want to not just purchase something but then you want to in some way manipulate it understand it and maybe put it together in a way that's new to you so well uh, if we really want to loop back all the way to the beginning let's talk about Wayfair for just a second (laughs) which is like you know you can buy all kinds of stuff there that has nice design really you know attractive and but when it's in your house and the question is oh I love that piece where did you get it and the answer is Wayfair it feels a lot different than oh I found it in this great gallery or oh I was you know uh you know up in Vermont or I picked it out of a dumpster which is entirely possible too and just as satisfying I'm just like I think we like that idea of the things we own tell the story of where we've been and sort of you know, it, it's fun for me to say, oh, yeah, I bought this when I was in Australia and that's from when I was in France and I saw this when I was, you know, here. And I think, you know, I talked to the artist about this piece before I bought it or whatever it is. I remember the first major piece that my ex-husband and I bought was a piece from an artist who painted with blood, which is totally creepy, by the way, not my pick for a piece, but he really loved it. Um, and like, it was one of these funny things where it was really important to my ex to know, uh, what kind of blood it was painted with. And the artist, for some reason, was really weird about sharing what kind of blood it was painted Mm. with. I know. So, but, but it was like this weird thing. And then the whole time, you know, it didn't look like blood, but like every time I looked at it, since I knew that that's all I saw because to anyone else, it would have just looked like red paint. Huh. I know it's preserved under resin so that it kept its red and it was mixed with some mica and it was very interesting. But anyway, but yes, I had could not wait. I was glad when we got divorced. I got the blood painting out of my house. It was very nice. (laughs) (laughs) But this does go back to what makes you buy something. And maybe for me, one of the triggers is if I feel like I can have a further conversation with it. It's not just a thing, but it will continue to be something that becomes part of the larger mosaic of my life, whatever that is. How's that for saying nothing with a lot of words? I was very impressed with you. I think you're a very impressive person. 
Okay. I'm going to think about this more. I am going to think about this more. Good. Um, Abigail, would you like to share where people can find you if they're looking for you either online or if they want to come by the gallery? Yeah, we're uh, we're in the South End at 460 Harrison Avenue. Um, and you can always email me. I'm just Abigail at AbigailOglevy.com, which is really easy. And our website is AbigailOglevy.com. So it really helps having your name be your <laughs> business. <laughs> um, yeah, and we have an Instagram, Twitter. You know, you can follow us if you're interested. But uh, and hopefully if you stay tuned, we'll have some videos about our artists at the end of the summer. Cool. And I will say um, I follow Abigail on Instagram and there's always lots of interesting art and uh, peeks into artist studios and lots of fun stuff. So that's a fun one to follow. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, and as always, you can find me at ballserdesigns.typepad.com. And we love to hear your comments and questions. Um, and if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag poundartingpodcast. That's all one word, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll subscribe. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast podcast.